So Romans chapter 2, we've made it to chapter 2, and today we'll look at, we'll recap a little bit uh, of chapter uh, verse 1. We'll be going through verses 2 through 4 as our main subjects, uh, looking at a couple of things. But I titled the message in Romans 2, verses 2 through 4, Unconscious Hypocrisy. Unconscious Hypocrisy. If you want to put a title to something or your notes and prepare, Unconscious Hypocrisy. Romans 2, we'll look at 2 through 4, recapping verse 1, and then we'll get into the message. So as born-again Christians, we are told to pray unceasingly. Constantly, constantly communing with the Lord. And we do that through our mediator, Jesus Christ. We can only do that because what he's done through his shed blood on the cross. So every time we come to the Lord in prayer, we remember what he's done for us. That's how we remember. And then we remember him daily because we should be communing with him daily. That's how we remember. It's a memorial like today, Memorial Day weekend. Every last weekend in May, we in the United States set aside this day to recognize and mourn and be thankful for what those in the military have done for us, given their lives for our freedoms. And the hope is that as we remember them, as we're out barbecuing ribs and chicken and burgers and hot dogs, whatever it might be this weekend, and we gather with family, the hope is that we would be grateful for the sacrifice that we could actually do these things. And as we remember Christ, we are grateful and thankful for the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice that He made for us. This is what the Apostle Paul is pointing out that there's a need, that everybody has this same need. In Texas, there are those who are remembering their loved ones that are lost. You may have read some of the stories, and it's tragic, and we pray for them. I had the opportunity to reach out to a couple of the pastors over there. And so we lift them up with those children that have died, the adults that have died. And on these occasions, there's this temptation in the pulpits to, to make it uh, a use of many different points, some political, some spiritual, and moral. And we're tempted to get into the debate on both sides. And we see that already happening on day one, on day two, in these tragic times. We're tempted to get into the, the debate. But I like what Warren Wiersbe wrote. As I began to think about these things, my heart begin to go in a different direction. But the Lord brought me back and said, just stay with it. Stay with it. Because on these occasions, Warren Wiersbe writes, he exhorts the expository preacher to resist being tempted to get sentimental and ignore the spiritual. We got to teach God's word. Because if I'm talking about the political, if I'm talking about these things, I'm going to forget the spiritual because there's no law, there's nothing that I can say in my own opinion that's going to change a heart. It's God's Word that's going to change a heart. And why would I want to teach anything else? I'm certain many are taking to the pulpits today as evidence. Look at God has been taken out of schools and this is the result. That's the easy way out. But how dare we do that? I think it's a sad proposal to use this as an opportunity for finger pointing. And this is what we see happening in these message, in these portions of Scripture. The Apostle Paul just talking about all these evidence, all these, all these blatant sins that we live in our lives. And we've got these people that think they're spiritual because of the way that they live and they're pointing fingers at everybody else. How do you win anyone with a law over love? It's the law that's supposed to direct you to the right thing, to keep you in the right thing. And I believe this is what the Apostle Paul's getting into. And so the first thing we're going to look at 
in verses 1 through 3, again recapping unconscious hypocrisy. In other words, the man who says, I'm all good. I don't need anything. I'm not as bad as those people. I'm not as bad. I would never do anything like that. We're going to look at that person. And then the mistake that many make, even believers in Jesus Christ. In verse 4, we're going to look at mistaking God's patience as approval of our lifestyles, as approval of our sins. And we begin to sweat now as we think about those things. Remember over the span of the life of the nation of Israel, there are many memorials set, many festivals celebrated, Passover being a big one, memorials to them to remember what God has done in their lives. There's been many memorial stones set up as signs of remembrance. And every nation does these things. Remember with me in Bethel, in Genesis 28, Verses 10 through 22, Jacob, he sets up a pillar in Bethel to commemorate a powerful vision of God that he experienced while he was sleeping there. And that experience was so striking that Jacob felt that it must be commemorated. So he erected that stone, the one that he slept on. In Joshua 4, 1 through 8, in Gilgal, God commands the Israelites to cross the Jordan River, which, we, which he stopped miraculously. Joshua leads the 12 tribes to remove boulders from the riverbed, which they set up in the promised land in a place called Gilgal. But these stones were appreciated not just by those who witnessed the miracle, but they were set up, as verses 21 through 22 explains, for the future of the children to be able to ask, what do these stones mean? And then they would be able to tell them, this is where the Israelites crossed the Jordan on dry ground. And God longs for us to proclaim His goodness to future generations, which is why it's so important that we make sure we have good places for these kids to learn about the Lord. And then that remembrance stone of Ebenezer in 1 Samuel 7, 7 through 12, depicts the Israelites under imminent attack from the Philistines. And God leads them to victory. So Samuel sets up a large stone, names it Ebenezer, meaning the stone of help. Samuel recognizes the source of their victory and publicly declares it. By commemorating God's goodness in a permanent way, it ensured that the Israelites would not forget God's grace. And so these are the things that we commemorate in our lives. There are stones of remembrances in our lives that remind us of what He's done for us. And us today, that stone of remembrance for those born again is our chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. He's that rock upon which the weight of the church completely rests, or it should. Peter and John, when they were arrested in Acts chapter 4, they stood before the Sanhedrin, and Peter with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to Jesus, This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. What did he mean they rejected the stone? Or he meant that they rejected Messiah. You see, there was a very illuminative uh, 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 story that every Jew at the time was said to know. And it's really a legend. But it goes something like this, that when the temple of Solomon was in construction, all the stones sent up from the quarry below were practically of the same size and shape. One day a stone was found different from all the rest, and the builder said, There is no place for this stone. There must be a mistake. So they rolled it to the edge of the cliff and tumbled it down into the valley of the Kidron below the temple area. And as the years went on, they were finally ready for the chief cornerstone. So they sent down uh, the order for it, and they were told, You must have it there. We sent it to you a long time ago. So they, the search proved fruitless. Until an old workman remembered and said, Oh yes, I remember. There was a stone different from the rest. We thought there was no place for it. So we tumbled it down into the valley. So the builders went down. They found the stone. It's covered in debris. 
and it was the very stone that they needed that was rejected. So they had to hoist it to the top of the cliff, then back to the platform and put it up into its place, and it fit perfectly. And the stone the builders rejected had become the headstone of the corner. That's the legend at when that was said, every Jew was said to understand this legend. And so they were setting him up just as Jesus was lifted up. So in Bethel, Jacob did not want to forget what God had given him. Bethel, meaning house of God, then became an important center for worship. And by physically remembering what God had done, Jacob increased his faith and the faith of those who later worshiped there. And that's what we do here. This is a remembrance stone. Remember what the Lord did. Remember what the Lord has done. Remember how the Lord has moved us and transitioned. This is why I share what's on my heart, what the Lord might be saying and doing. I want you to join me in the prayer so we can all look back and say, remember that? Remember when you said that? And look at what the Lord's done now. Praise God for those times. In Gilgal, the remembrance stones reminded future generations of the God of miracles so that their faith would be renewed so that you could look back and say, yes, I remember and I know that he could do it again. And in in Ebenezer, by commemorating God's goodness in a permanent way, it ensured that the Israelites would not forget God's grace. The memorial stones made sure that all glory went to God, the illustrator of Israel's success. So we remember, remember these areas in our life where God has moved, where God has worked so that we can renew our strength, that we can remember God's grace, what he's done for us. And Jesus, our chief cornerstone, lifted up, as the Apostle Paul has told us already, is the power of salvation itself. And we cannot overemphasize the cross too much. You can't talk about the cross too much. You can't sit back and say to yourself, man, this, this guy teaches about the cross all the time. I'm tired of hearing about it. I want to hear about something else. But it has, we need to overemphasize it. It has so much power. You cannot memorialize or remember it often enough, the gospel. The gospel, as Paul stated in chapter 1, is the power unto salvation. We remember that daily. This is the best thing for the born-again Christian to remember, especially on days and occasions such as the ones that we're celebrating today, or we will celebrate. So we get to these verses here, unconscious hypocrisy. Romans 2, let's reread verse 1. We'll go through verse 3 and we'll stop there for a moment. It says, therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God. He's going back and forth in his argument, virtually talking to people as he's having this written down for himself. We talked about a lot of that last week, and we established already who that old man who is inexcusable was. It was the person looking down the nose on other people. It's something that we can all get caught up in. The Jew thinking at that time that they were all right with God because of who they were, the chosen. I'm the chosen. I'm the chosen person. So there's nothing I can do to make God not love me. The Stoic thinking that they were all right because of their moral standards. And it's as if one group was saying, I'm chosen so it doesn't matter how I live. And the other group was saying, look how I live, so I must be chosen. Both were completely wrong. Both thinking they're all right for what they haven't done. Do you know people like that? 
I haven't been like this person. I haven't done what that person has done. I've never done this or I don't do that anymore. They think they're all right for what they haven't done. But that's not what God looks at. In fact, these people, they're actually practicing the same things that they condemn others for. And it's not a matter of what's done outwardly, is it? It's a matter of the heart. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He's breaking down every argument. It's amazing. He had discussed the subtleties of sin in our introduction to this portion of Romans. We don't go from chapter 1 into chapter 2. We do that today, but this was a consistent letter, which is why we're finding some overlap here. And we have to recount some of these things. And so now we come to these first four verses again, and we notice this unconscious hypocrisy. That happens when we don't understand God's holiness and when we don't understand our sinfulness. When we don't have a complete understanding of that. And Paul here is addressing those who are actually blind to their own condition of heart. They don't see it. Hypocrisy, one writes, is almost always unconscious. It draws the veil over its own evil deeds while it condemns those of others. Not intentionally, but because human nature is strangely gifted with the power of deceiving itself. We, you and I, are gifted with the power of deceiving ourselves, thinking I'm not as bad as the other person. When we put down somebody else, we're in a sense elevating ourselves to a higher status. When we're all on the same playing field. That's one thing I share in funeral services or memorial services. I share that death is the great leveler because we all come to it. There's nobody exempt from it. And that puts us all on the same playing field. We see this so clearly in the book of Malachi when we deceive ourselves. Remember these things with the nation of Israel? God and Malachi argued these same points with the people in Israel. Malachi, the book of Malachi, was written to rebuke the people for their shallow worship practices. Portions of Malachi are written in the format of a debate. Unlike any other book of the Bible, God first makes a statement of truth, then it's denied by the people. Where do we see this? In Malachi 1.6, God talking, he said, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts to you priests who despise my name. Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? Malachi 1.7, you offered defiled food on my altar. But then you say, in what way have we defiled you? In Malachi chapter 2 as God is calling out their infidelity to their wives, and God tells them He will not receive their sacrifices any longer, they stand there and they say, Why not? For what reason? Malachi 2.17, when people were impatient because they thought God delayed His justice, He was a wearied God. And they said, In what? And, and, and He said, I'm wearied. I'm a wearied God. And, he's, and they said, In what way have we wearied Him? In what way? In Malachi chapter 3, God's calling them out for not giving their tithes and offerings, saying they're robbing him. And they say, in what way have we robbed you? Again, in Malachi chapter 3, everybody's complaining. They're saying it's useless to serve God. What prophets, what prophets it, we have kept his or, ordinance? What does it profit us? When called out on it by the Lord, they said, what have we spoken against you? Pretty amazing, but don't we do the same things many times? How have we not served you, Lord? How have we not loved you? 
Lord, Lord, look at all the things I did in your name. And then Jesus says, depart from me, you evil servant. I never knew you. Malachi was addressed to the nation of Judah almost 100 years after its return from captivity in Babylon. At first, the people had been very enthusiastic about rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple and restoring their system of worship, but their zeal began to wane. They wondered about God's love for them as His chosen people. They began then to offer defective animals as sacrifices and to withhold their tithes and offerings. It's interesting, isn't it? Their service to the Lord became monotonous. It was just something that they did. And because it became monotonous, their worship, their sacrifices, their daily living in this monotony was never was no longer done as unto the Lord. I know we can get that way. And we can get that way in the church. Okay, I'm going to get there at this time. This is what I need to do. I mean, even me. I need to prep my message on these days. This is what I need to get, get there on time. We're going to make sure everything, the sound is good. I mean, we can get in this monotonous pattern and forget what we're doing it for. And we could do that all in, in, in our lives. It's interesting though, too, if you think about it, this monotony was happening right before the 400 years of silence in the intertestamental period and from Malachi to Matthew. The 400 years of silence. God goes silent. I wonder why. All the complaints. Lord, when, we have, when have we done these things to you? And all these warnings beforehand. When have we done these things to you? Has God gone, gotten silent with you? Have you been pushing back with him? Like Peter? No, Lord, you're not going to do that. But Peter repented, didn't he? He changed his heart. But we can continue to push back and push back. And then God says, you know what? I'll speak to you when your heart is ready. But maybe your heart will never be ready if you haven't accepted Christ. In unconscious, in unconscious hypocrisy, there is deceit of self. We are blind to our own conditions. This is what was happening. These are why... In the book of Malachi, the people of Israel were asking these questions to the Lord. When did we do that? And he's telling them, you did it when you did this, this, and this. I don't see that. Look at my life. I'm okay. I'm not as bad as them. So I have to be okay. It's because we don't understand God's holiness and our sinful condition, which is why he went through all of that information in chapter 1, that we're all born into it. And there's only one way of escape through the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, therefore, that was the key word in the entire verse. It linked to what was previously said. Paul, to these critics, is saying, essentially, that they are saying, look at how they live. Of course, judgments is going to come upon them. Look at what they're doing. Even this morning with around our areas, the helicopters flying around and they're looking for the this robber. Apparently he got away, which is fantastic for us, right? Apparently he got away. But in our minds, we think, of course, that guy should be arrested. Of course he should. Look what he's doing. And I think about all those times I rode my Harley completely drunk and I never got pulled over once, but I deserved it. Should have happened to me. And I'm over here judging this guy for what he's doing when I should be judged for the same thing. You understand? You understand what I'm saying? We do that. We look down at other people because we're blinded to ourselves. Of course, look at how they live. They should be struck with disease. Look at what they're doing. They should be imprisoned. They should die. They should pay for what they've done. But we practice the same things that we condemn. 
And when we do that, guess what Paul is saying? That same judgment you're pronouncing on them is pronounced on you. Whoa, can't be. We're the chosen people. I'm a Christian. I shouldn't be punished for anything. Will we reap what we sow? We may have salvation. Yes, absolutely. But if we're living a lifestyle that we ought not to be, there is punishment that will come. The Lord loves us. He will rebuke us because He wants us right with Him. The list that was given to us in chapter 1 leads uh, us to these pictures of sinners that are in obvious need. Watching this show, I don't remember what it was the other day. It was depicting these characters that were uh, shooting up drugs and all of this. And, and you think to yourself, yeah, they should be arrested. These are obviously sinners. They obviously need help. These are the people that need help. But we don't look at ourselves. The Jew, God's chosen, stood in equal need. And so we see this word here. It says, whoever you are who judged, that's who it was written to, whoever judges. And at that time, we know it was both the Jew, the religious Jew, and it was the Stoic in Rome, as we depicted, as we outlined last week. But here's the thing, to convince that type of person of this, you have to use a different process. A different process is required. They're confident that they should escape the just punishment of sin. So it's necessary to convince them that the grounds of their expectations are false. You're on shaky ground if you think that you're okay. Why? Because they're comparing to the wrong standards. They're using the wrong measurements. You know what the wrong measurement is? The wrong measurement is comparing your life to another. Jesus said not to do that. What does it matter to you, Peter, if what he does? You do what I tell you to do. When we compare our lives to another, I mean, how many people do that on social media? And they become depressed. Man, I sure don't look like that. Or we'll just take a picture of our head and then we'll size it down so it looks skinnier. <laughs> Have you ever done that? Never, never. Look at our wonderful, happy family. But as soon as you get off of social media, you're ripping each other up and down. Practicing the same things. When he talks about practicing the same things, practicing, it was a hab habitual routine in their lives. The, the Jew saw himself with no need of salvation because they were chosen. Oh, it was already told to me that uh, I'm a Jew, so automatically I'm in. And the Apostle Paul saying, no, it's not the case. You need Jesus just like everybody else. So this statement would have shocked them. This whole chapter would have shocked them. And they're thinking to themselves, like in the book of Malachi, how are we living this way? What are you talking about? We don't live like those guys. Obviously, they're going to hell. Look at their life. But me? No. I'm cleaned up. I've got my shirt pressed. I've got a you know, crease here. Uh, I'm good. I'm all set. I don't live like them. When Jesus and John the Baptist showed up on scene, what was the message? To the Jew, repent. That was the message. Repent, repent from what? It confused them entirely. What did they have to repent of? We're all good. And there's a story that Jesus drew upon when he was in the temple. Remember the story in Luke 18? The story of the Pharisee and the tax collector? Very vivid picture. The attitude of, I'm all good. The prayer of, I'm all good. What is the prayer of this Pharisee? He says, also he spoke of this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Jesus goes on, he, he says, two men went up to the temple to pray. This is in verses 9 through 16 of Luke 18. 
Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What a picture Jesus points out. Isn't it awesome? Think about it for a moment. Jesus often using things that he's seen happen as examples. I am certain he saw this happen. I'm almost certain of it, that he had watched this whole thing happen and he used it as an example. What a teacher. And he's saying, do you ever prayer? Do you ever pray like that? Lord, thank you that I'm not like this. Thank you that I don't do this. We can get in that mode. This is the prayer and the attitude of, I'm all good. I don't need any help. R. Kent Hughes, he, he talks about this common tradition that they had at that time. A common tradition claimed that Abraham himself sat at the gate of hell to keep all the Jews out regardless of their deeds. Trypho the Jew is alleged to have said, They who are the seed of Abraham according to the flesh shall in any case, even if they be sinners and unbelieving and disobedient toward God, share in the eternal kingdom. This is what they had come to believe in their traditions. We know that not to be true, because look at what happened in the Old Testament. Every time they were disobedient, they were punished. Some didn't make it in. So we know it's not true, but this was the attitude that came out. Can we get like that, especially today in the church in the United States? We can become so much like that in the United States. I'm, I see it all over the place where we think we have this status over every other church. We can get in the same mode thinking I'm all good and we're deceiving ourselves. In the Sermon on the Mount, you remember the Beatitudes, the blessings that Jesus is going through. These series of, you have heard it was said, statements made by Jesus. You remember that? You recall those things to your mind? Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 22. Jesus talking, he says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. You ever consider murder in your heart through hatred as it builds and builds? He says again in Matthew 5, 27 through 28, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Ooh, that second look, a rubbernecker. You ever heard that term, rubbernecking? <laughs> You're just rubbernecking all the time. Committed it in your heart. Matthew 5, 38 through 9. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Matthew 5, 43 through 44. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. What? Can we do these things? These are the teachings of your Lord and your Savior and your Master. 
What's he talking about to the whoever, whoever judges, whoever judges those trying to live righteous and performing outward actions to Jesus. Righteousness centers where in the heart it starts in the heart. And when you have a right heart will produce the right outward actions. You're not saved by what you do. You're saved by who, you know, Jesus Christ, is he residing in your heart? Are you born again? There's no other way. That's what he's saying. He's reminding them, look at, this is what the Bible said, but Jesus, Jesus goes on to it further. It's not the written law. It's the law of the heart that needs to be changed. That's what produces the outward. And so he's saying to these guys, it doesn't matter how you try to live your life on the outward. I'm all good. And pointing fingers at how everybody else is living. He's looking in your heart and he knows, doesn't he? You're not getting away with anything. You think you are, but you're not. The Lord knows our hearts. He knows what we're doing everywhere. Even the things we think we're doing in secret, he sees. It's what the Bible teaches. So the Apostle Paul is breaking down every argument amazingly, showing we're all in need, everybody. Those who are in blatant, obvious sin is easy to point out. Those who think they're just all right also need Christ. I thought about the song from the Doobie Brothers. Jesus is just all right with me. This is that song in reverse. I think I'm all right with Jesus. He can't just be all right with you. You got to be his, he's got to be your everything. Living by the Ten Commandments is already difficult. Nobody can do it. We see that in the Bible everywhere. But you could try to fake it. You could try to do those things that look right. You could have the appearance that everything's good. And you know what? There's a lot of people that can fake it very well. And you think to yourself, man, that person is living such a righteous life. And you think you've got everybody fooled. But when Jesus comes and says, you have to live by these standards on the Sermon on the Mount. Oh man, that's the inward. And guess who sees that? The Lord sees that. That's more difficult. More difficult because Jesus is saying, you can't fake it because I see what's inside of you. And guess what? You need me. Here I am. You need me. We may not commit the physical acts, but Jesus said there's no different if you, there's no difference if you've done what done it inwardly. You're just as guilty. So Paul's charge here is you judge others for outward blatant sins but you're doing those same things and there's no escape. You're the same way in Matthew chapter seven, verses one and two, it says, judge not that you be not judged for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So we ask ourselves today, how do we see ourselves? in the light of God's judgment today. This is why I tell you, when we came to Romans chapter one, and the apostle Paul talks about our justification, this is why it was so important that we lock that down and we screw it down tightly in our brains. Because those of us who are born again, when we get to these, we're gonna be thinking, oh my gosh, you know, shaking in our boots sometimes as we ought to, because we want to examine. What measurement do you use to evaluate your standing with God? I have to fall back to the cross. I have to fall back on His grace. But if you haven't done that, you have to examine it. If you want to be judged by how you feel or by your works, guess what? You will be. 
and you'll be in a bad place of judgment. And there's only one opportunity, and that's why while we're here. The Bible tells us works are not good enough. There's no substitution for salvation. How do we know this? Matthew 5.20, Jesus said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. This statement alone puts up an impossible barrier for works only salvation. Because they were perfect almost in everything that they attempted to do, yet they, they, that wasn't good enough. Salvation through the cross. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And I'll tell you what, born-again Christians, Christianity, we are the only church that teaches this. Everybody else, all other religions teach works. I try to gain my way to God, and Jesus said, no, I'm God, and I went down to you. Man, who would not want to do that? But we have this thing in us. I have to do something. I have to earn it. Like Peter, you're not going to do that, Lord. Man, if I don't do this for you, you've got no part in me. If you don't let me into your heart, you will have no part with me ever. Even if you feel like you are, even if you feel like you're doing the best, even if you feel like you're not living like those other people, you will be the best person in hell. That's what the Bible teaches. So in unconscious hypocrisy, we deceive ourselves. We're blind to our own sinful condition. And if you've never been born again, I wonder the condition you find yourself in today. Are you like the religious Jew? Are you like the Stoic Greek and Roman who just try to live a good moral life outwardly and I'm all good and you think to yourself, well, I don't commit the biggies of sin, so I'm, I'm okay. I, I do everything that all these other people do. It's pretty common. I'm good. But Paul is putting down those arguments and he's saying, not good enough. It's not good enough to get you into eternity. And I wonder if you're at that breaking point yet. Those watching online even, are you at that breaking point yet? It's not good enough. When will you get there? Because as we go through these verses and we come to verse 5 and we continue on, we're going to look at wrath building upon you, building upon you, and building upon you. Remember I told you through Chapter 3, verse 20, we're going to dive deep. It's going to get dark. This should break us as Christians. This should break our hearts for those people who are in our, our loved ones, our family, our friends who don't know Christ. This is why the Apostle Paul was so, he was not ashamed of the gospel, he says. I find it a privilege to share. And our hearts break. We come to verse 4 and it says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance, his long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? It's almost like this argument that he's having with himself, with these guys, maybe in his mind, that as he's writing this letter, we could look at this as if he's yelling at them or chewing them out. I don't look at it that way. I think of a man who's just grieved and he's hurt and he's hurting for his brothers and sisters and he's desiring them to be right with God. See here, God has a way of exposing our sins. We mistake God's goodness as approval of our lifestyles, but he has a way of exposing our sins. We already talked about in the last chapter how the Lord, how we know through different ways, that God is real. But He has a way of exposing sins to us. His Word is like holding up a mirror to our souls. But here's the thing. We have to look in that mirror and identify those impurities. But we don't want to. Because if we look into a mirror, we have to acknowledge imperfections. And who likes to do that? 
And once we acknowledge the imperfections, we'll have to make a decision to remain the same or do we change the situation? You know, in my house, I, I can't stand the way that our restroom is set up. I don't know who bright idea it was, but it, as soon as you step out of the shower, there's a huge mirror right there. And who wants to see that? We talked about taking pictures and social media and how we like to present the best of our lives. We don't like to see ourselves for who we truly are. When I see myself in a picture, before somebody shows it to me, I always look back and think for some reason, I'm still 170 pounds with black, dark hair. I don't know why. Do you do that? And, you, and then you, you see the picture and you think, who's that? Who's that old guy with gray hair? When we see our true selves, we have to acknowledge areas of imperfections. We just see them. We acknowledge them. We don't like it. And when we see our true selves, we see those things. And the law, God's word, is like that mirror, isn't it? It leads to imperfections. In it, we see God's love, His goodness, His forbearance, His patience. Is this not what Paul is saying here? As he says in Galatians 3, 24, he says, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Did you notice that word, though, might? He's patient, he's loving, he's good, that we might be justified. Why does he say might? Because not everybody will. Because not everybody will see the true person that they really are. They'll turn away from that mirror because they want to keep the image of themselves like they've always seen themselves. They don't want to deal with the truth. You remember those cartoons and you would see ostriches with their heads in the sands all over the place? I remember those cartoons. It's like that. You put your head in the sand. If I don't see it, it's not there. There's no fear. If I don't see it, I don't have to deal with it. And you just push it off and push it off and push it off until what? Until it's too late. The Bible tells us that God does not want anyone to go to hell. So then why does he allow people? Because you make the choice. You have free will. You get to decide. I don't understand it either. But that's what the Bible teaches. 2 Peter 3, 9-10 through 10 says, before uh, he talks about judgment and the day of the Lord, he, Peter writes this, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. How about the NIV version? It says, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Oh, the NLT version. I love this one. The Lord isn't really being slow about His promise, as some people think. Isn't that great? Just breaks it down. He says, no, He's being patient for your sake doesn't want anybody to be destroyed, but wants everybody to repent. But the day of the Lord will come unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve what? Judgment. Judgment is coming. Judgment comes on everyone. It just depends where you stand with the Lord. Is Jesus your advocate or will, will he be your judge? That's how he came. That's what the Bible teaches us. God has a way of exposing our sins to us. But do we acknowledge them? You remember the story of the prodigal son? I'm sure you remember the, that story. 
the prodigal son, he takes his inheritance, he goes off and he goes and sleeps with prostitutes and he spends all his money, he's gambling, he's drinking, he's doing all those things, he's living the Vegas lifestyle. And it's easy for us to see his blatant sins. It's easy for us to point them out. But you know what the real story was? It was the older brother. It was the story of the older brother. You know the one. He did everything right. He stayed home. He worked hard. He didn't take his inheritance from his dad. But when his younger brother came home, his dad accepted him. His dad ran to him. And he gave him the fatted calf, which in those times was a very special thing. And we see the true colors then of the older brother. His hatred for his dad and his brother came out. But he was living so right. See, it's the inward. It's what was in his heart that was exposed. God exposed the sin in the older brother's life that he didn't want to acknowledge and look at. And God has a way to do that to us. We don't want to acknowledge these things in our lives. But if we're to become more in his likeness, he must. And why does he do that when we've accepted Christ already? So that others might come to know him through our lives. God exposes that sin. He looked down upon his younger brother's sins. But guess what? He was guilty of the same thing. This is the Apostle Paul in his report here. Pharisees, they knew Jesus was speaking to them at that time when he was telling that parable. And instead of repenting, they became angry and they wanted to kill him. And then guess what? They never changed because they never acknowledged their sins. They were the, I'm all good. Don't need anything else. They were the ones turning away from the mirror, not examining. When that God puts that mirror of scripture in front of us, we need to be so genuine at that time and just ask ourselves, Lord, is this me? Is this true of me? And if so, change me. You don't think God will come flying to that heart? He will. The Bible tells us He will. It is riches. He talks about here in verse 4, riches of His goodness, His forbearance, His long-suffering, attempting to lead us to salvation. But in His delay of judgment, we mistake it for acceptance of sin. Well, I don't see any judgment coming, but so it must be okay. I must be doing something okay. It's legal, so it must be good. They've made it legal, so everyone seems to agree, so it must be right. As born-again Christians, we can sit through this entire message and begin to think of others. But we're warned against that train of thought, too. It's the same mistake that King David made. See, he committed adultery, and in trying to cover it up, he committed murder. We know he was a man of faith. God called him a man after his own heart. And David thought he got away with it until one day Nathan comes. And Nathan tells him exactly what he's done. How do you know that? God told me. told me to come talk to you. I've had that happen in my life. And man, let me tell you, it's not fun. God gave me time to repent as his child, and I never did until he exposed it. Why will he expose it? Why will he expose your sin? Because he loves you. He wants you to be adorned. He wants to prepare his bride for heaven in purity. But we stand back and we say, well, I don't want to deal with that. Nathan held up a mirror to David's soul, and his sin had blinded him. He was trying to be all good. I'm all good. In that exchange that they had, Nathan tells him the whole story. There was judgment pronounced on David. And as Nathan tells him this story, he says, David, what should we do with that guy who did something like this? 
David said, man, that guy deserves to be judged. Take him out. And Nathan says, David, it's you. Now, what did David do at that point? He folded. He repented. Beautiful. He looked in the mirror and he saw himself. And he just folded. May we do that today, this Memorial Day, as we remember Christ, as we remember what he did. May we use it as a time to reflect in the mirror and be truthful and honest with ourselves. Have we looked at it genuinely to see if we are fooling ourselves in our walk with Christ or if we're even in a walk with Christ? Truthfully looking and considering our status in eternity. Because this life, although we think it's everything and all there is, it's not. It's not about here, it's about there. See, there are some physically fit who will say, I, lo I like looking in the mirror. I love what I see. I mean, they're just ripped, they're built. But that's what you have produced. That's what you've produced. But on the inside, has the Spirit changed you? When you look back at yourself, do you see your works that you have sculpted and then think to yourself, how could Christ deny this? I mean, do you think to yourself, even in your life, how you live your daily life, how could the Lord deny me? It cannot be that. The reflection that we must see is what Christ has produced in us. And that can only happen if we are born again of the Holy Spirit. And if you are born of the Holy Spirit, and in sin, guess what? You're not getting away with it. Better to deal with it now, confess it now, before he has to expose it. He's being patient. But we don't know for how long. Are you willing, those who don't know Christ, are you willing to take the chance that his patience won't end today? What if it ends today? Where will we be? Where will you be? Where will I be? These are the things that we must examine. These are the things that the Apostle Paul is examining. And he's saying, hey guys, guess what? You need Jesus too. And we all do. And if you haven't accepted Christ today, you need to. And if you're right with Christ, if you accepted Christ and you're living in some sin, there's something going on in your life, you need to deal with that. Repent. Get right with the Lord. Get cleaned up. Because your life is being watched by somebody else and they may need Christ. We need to live in holiness and praise God for that. Thank you that He loves us so much to be patient with us. Let's get right with the Lord. And let's remember what He did for us today, this Memorial Day. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word. Help us today through your word as a mirror into our souls to examine our hearts, our lives, our minds, Lord. The way that we're living, Father. If we think that we're all good and we've never accepted you, that argument has just been pulled down. And those people, Lord, that feel this conviction, this nagging in their heart, that's your Holy Spirit moving in their lives. And we pray that you would Acknowledge Jesus Christ today as your Lord and Savior. It must be something done with your entire being, with your entire soul. It can't just be the words. It's got to be both. And for those of us, Lord, who need cleaned up, that's between, me, that's between us and you. That's between them and you. They don't need to get up here and just share everything they've done. Or they can get right with you right now just by repenting. And we thank you so much for this free gift of salvation. Our desire for everybody, like the Apostle Paul, like you, Jesus, is for everybody to have an opportunity to be with you in eternity in heaven. So that's what we pray, Father. We pray this according to your will. And we thank you now in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen.